0: Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Joining me today at the glass table of the Wilson Center studio is Nina Jankowicz, who is a disinformation fellow with the Science Technology Innovation Program. And she uh, has done a lot of work on Ukraine, disinformation, Russia, a lot of things that we've been talking about for years now.
1: Yes, it's strange and serendipitous how that happened. I can't say I'm sad about it, although I wish we were talking about it for more positive reasons. <laughs> well,
0: and that you know has brought you to the Wilson Center now twice. This is your second time around. You were for, Formerly, you did a, a stint with the Cannon Institute, and now you're with the STIP program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a book coming out, right?
1: Yes, July 9th, How to Lose the Information War, Russia Fake News and the Future of Conflict. You can pre-order it now.
0: All right, and that is not fake news. You can pre-order <laughs> it on Amazon, uh, and it'll be out July 9th. So I wanted to talk to you because you've lived in Ukraine. Am I correct on Yes,
1: that? yeah. I lived there for over a year, uh, from 2016 to 2017. And
0: you do a lot of work with Ukraine. Ukraine and I'm sure have a lot of contacts mm-hmm. there. Um it seems to me when I was thinking about doing this podcast episode Ukraine unfortunately seems to be at the center of many international stories in the last, you know, 7 or 8 years. Yeah. I mean not only do they have territory invaded, uh they have, you know, then they become a central role in the impeachment of an American president, mm-hmm. planes are coming down out of the sky. Yeah. What is it like to be in Ukraine right now?
1: I think, you know, I was there in December and I was really surprised by the optimism there, actually. I, I kind of expected for some reason for Ukrainians to at least be annoyed, if not beleaguered, by everything that's going on. But um, this new administration, the Zelensky administration, there's a lot of positive signs that uh, anti-corruption reform is going the right way. Uh, he still has positive momentum and positive approval ratings in the country, which normally for Ukrainian presidents, there's kind of like this. Um, Messiah complex where they voted someone in and they think that that person is going to save the country solve all of the problems and then a couple months later that evaporates but it, there still seems to be some momentum there um, and there's even signs you know um, within the capital city um, and among people that uh, that there's that positive momentum things like um, just the infrastructure of the city uh, paving in uh, on the sidewalks and things like that 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 basic infrastructure is improving along with the uh, The reforms that many Ukrainians have been clamoring for for the last six years since the Maidan revolution and then before that, basically since independence. So I see it uh, as a pretty positive moment for Ukraine. And it's unfortunate that that story isn't getting told uh, amid all of this intrigue Mm. with regard to Ukraine and Washington.
0: So Ukraine's always kind of had this history for centuries really of being sandwiched between russia and european powers and always being put upon yeah um and what does that do to kind of a national psyche when kind of and it seems to continue to happen Uh, even when they're trying to do positive things and they elect a new president and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, optimism about that new administration And then he has a call with the president and that that, you know things happen. Yeah. That just seems like it just keeps rolling. What does that do to a national psyche?
1: Well, I think Ukrainians have actually been pretty resilient. And actually, if you look at the impeachment uh, saga, Zelensky stood his ground for a long time. He never did make that announcement. He didn't want to be the pawn in someone else's game. He wants Ukraine to be an independent nation that attracts interests of its own right. Um, And I think that's what Ukrainians have been clamoring for, for for a really long time. So I, you know, often when we're talking about Ukraine in these contexts in Washington, I urge everybody to remember that Ukrainians have that self-determination and they've made themselves a player in the game through these last 30 years through a lot of struggle. Um, But that's ultimately what Ukrainians want. They want to be a respected nation. They want, you know, to um, fulfill their agricultural promise. If they grew wheat at the capacity that they are meant to, they could feed the entire world Mm -hmm. with the crops that they produce there. They've got a lot of tech. Uh, prowess there as well. Uh, Zelensky was saying, you know, we have a lot of Ukrainians going to Poland to find work and other places in the EU. He wants Poles and other Europeans to be coming to Ukraine for work. So that's the sort of transition that hopefully uh, Ukraine can see, or at least they're going to be started on that path under this administration. Um, and it's something that I encourage people to to look at more. Uh, there's more than just these kind of crooks and mobsters that we're seeing in the news. There's a lot to be inspired by in Ukraine. Hmm.
0: Um, So one of the things I did differently with this podcast was I reached out to our network of congressional staffers who engage with the Wilson Center, told them I was going to be interviewing you, Uh and uh, asked folks to send in questions if they had any questions. And and so I want to get into a couple of their questions, because this is the Need to Know podcast, and and really the the setup is what what does a a policymaker really need to know? So you are in a perfect spot right now. Uh, One question we have is that Russia has typically used Ukraine as a testing ground for cyber attacks, election interference and disinformation campaigns. Are there things happening in Ukraine or other post-Soviet states that would indicate coming threats or areas of concern to Western democracies? Things we should be looking out for.
1: Yeah, I think there's two things. And one is a a bit of a a miss of the question. I'll get to that in a second. But the first one is because the uh, social media platforms have put in restrictions on the ways that advertising works. Around elections, Um, we're seeing bad actors, Russia included, try to uh, create workarounds with those advertising restrictions. So during the Ukrainian presidential election, uh, the Ukrainian SBU, their intelligence service, found a network of people who were trying to rent out accounts from real Ukrainians so that they could place ads under their names. And they were doing it for about $100 a month, which is pretty big bucks in Ukraine. That's about a a third of the monthly salary on average in Ukraine. Um, And there's evidence that they they were doing it in Belarus and other post-Soviet countries as well. And BuzzFeed has also done some reporting that bad actors are starting to do this in the United States. Facebook says that they've they've got a handle on it, but actually a lot of the organizing around this happens in private groups uh, and closed groups, so there's a little less oversight into that stuff. So I think that's just an awareness thing. We need to reach out to people and say like, hey, not only will this get you permanently suspended from Facebook, but this is something that bad actors are are trying to uh, take advantage of at at this time. Um, The second thing is actually less of a foreign interference trend or question and more of a domestic thing. So uh, during the Ukrainian presidential election, there was a lot less Russian, quote unquote, fake news or disinformation than many analysts expected, because there was so much rancor in the Ukrainian political discourse that Russia really didn't need to make that investment. It was kind of a cost benefit analysis. And it said, you know, here we are watching this from the Kremlin. Zelensky and Poroshenko are tearing each other apart. Not to mention all of the other tertiary actors and in, in the Ukrainian political system. There's there's plenty of fake news being slung from either side that is domestically generated. Why should we bother? And I think to some extent we're seeing a similar trend as we head into 2020 as well. If you take a look at what happened with the Iowa caucus, yes, there were upticks in Russia-linked accounts talking about rigging and things like that but we're generating a lot of our own rancor and a lot of our own domestic disinformation as well and Russia is happy to pile on to that but it doesn't need to be the source uh, so we need to think about that domestic disinformation question and how we address that in our own discourse
0: so are you saying that you feel like 20 that 2020 is different from 2016? in the in the amount of disinformation that's coming in from Russia?
1: Yeah, so I don't think it's going to be generated from the Internet Research Agency or another troll farm where they're creating those memes and creating these fake persona and pages uh, because we're all aware of that. The platforms are up on that. If there is uh, Russian interference or interference from another malign actor, I think it's going to be through these domestic actors uh, who are on the fringes, stoking tensions. Why uh, fissures and playing on those to their own political advantage and Russia can just kind of amplify rather than be the creator or source of the disinformation
0: so this goes right into a second question we got from a staffer which is that people are largely aware that dis- of disinformation as a concept mm-hmm. but they don't always recognize it when it's happening so how can I, I guess from the point of Congress how could Congress better educate the public on disinformation tactics?
1: That's a tough one and something I've talked about in my congressional testimony as well. Which is
0: why you're here at the Wilson uh, Center, right? We have (laughs) Nina to do this one job. You have one job, Nina. (laughs) I have one
1: job, disinformation fellow. Um, Yeah, so I think we definitely need to be spending more on media literacy, digital literacy, and civics. Uh, It's something that for some reason media literacy and and civics have kind of fallen out of of the public education curriculum. We need to reinforce invest in them. Obviously, that's at a state level. Uh, I would like to see Congress appropriate some money to train federal staff on these issues. Other countries are doing that. The Czech Republic does it. Poland does it. Um, and that's a good way to, you know, uh, there's a trickle down effect in that, I think. Um, so that's, that's one idea. But also, we need our politicians to understand it as well, which is why we just closed last week our first defeating disinformation workshop. I say first because we're hoping to have more more iterations of it. We brought in MPs from five countries and some congressional staff. So if this is perking up your ears, please do get in touch. We'll we'll have you on the next iteration. But we talked about uh, not only the comms tactics that we need to use when you find yourself in the midst of a disinformation maelstrom, but like the policy provisions as well. And outside of, uh, you know, media literacy, civics, etc. We talked about supporting uh, journalism as a public good, where we've had a lot of attacks on the free press here in the United States. Uh, it's not just about playing whack-a-troll mm. and and legislating against the platforms, which I think is the re- knee-jerk reaction. And that legislators here in the United States and having talked to them all of last week, our friends abroad are also doing. We need to have a whole of society solution. I know that sounds like a, a lot of mumbo jumbo, and we want a quick answer now, but it's not going to be quick because what's happening is that we're we're our. Societal fissures; our weaknesses are being weaponized, and so we need to we need to strengthen that and strengthen societal resilience.
0: That's interesting because it's not it's not like the financial crisis, right? Where you could you know take steps at the stock market, take steps at the bank, create a consumer protection bureau, right? Right. This is a societal issue, and while all policy problems probably have a societal component, this one. Really doesn't lend itself so much to regulation. You can probably, there are probably some things that. Congress or policymakers could do at the margins, but ultimately it comes down to an individual choice.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there definitely are regulations that need to happen. There's a lot of discussion about, for instance, breaking up big tech. I will sit that one out and not not comment on whether I think that's a good idea. I do think we need rules of the road. We don't have uh, common definitions about what these terms are, what these tactics look like. Even among the three big platforms, they all describe it differently. And that makes, you know, uh, protecting users really differently, d- really difficult rather. So I'd, I'd like to see uh, Congress look at that um, and look at protecting uh, people's voices, people's rights. That's uh, that's something that's being overlooked right now. But then we need to make those societal resilience investments that countries like Finland and Sweden and Estonia, yes, they're very small, but they've been doing this for many years. And there's a reason why, even though they're on Russia's borders, they have a lot smaller of a disinformation problem than we do. Mm.
0: Well, I like that you're what you're saying about civic. I certainly believe in civics education. Uh, I do, you know, guest lecturing and I do a lot of group talks about bipartisanship and our budget process and how Congress works. Yeah. So if any sponsors are out there that want to fund Aaron and Nina (laughs) doing a disinformation and civics project, we are are here ready to go. (laughs) Um, One more question that came from from a congressional staffer uh, is about the cultural norms and expectations that are on a government like Russia's when they do these sort of disinformation, disinformation tactics that they have. Uh, Is it sort of expected that Russia will do this even within Russia? I, I mean, from the Russian people. Do they just sort of expect uh, that's just that's just what this government will do, and that's what they're used to? I guess to a, to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know before disinformation made its way abroad, it was being practiced within Russia's borders itself. So I started my career at the National Democratic Institute. I worked on our Russia program. We, uh, after USAID made its exit from Russia, we left Russia as well. And there was a lot of disinformation about NDI and the work that NDI was doing, even though it was all totally above board. And if somebody from United Russia, Putin's party, wanted to come to one of our trainings, we would have welcomed that person. Uh, But there was a a strong disinformation and propaganda push within Russia about us. Uh, Um, And that's kind of when I first became exposed to this industry of Kremlin propaganda. Um, And I think Russians are a little bit uh, cynical. About the news that they consume, they understand that it's mostly government-sponsored now. There are some independent media outlets, but Putin has pretty successfully quashed a lot of those. Uh, and because of their legacy of kind of Soviet news and broadcasting, they just treat everything with a grain of salt. There are the people, of course, who who eat it all up. Um, but yeah, I think they have a, a skepticism. I don't think we want to. We don't want to go to their level of skepticism among our own. Uh, our, among our own population, but there's a there's a definitely a tinge of that skepticism. And should we expect Russia to do this? Yes, absolutely. We should expect every nation to be doing this because the tools um, of, of disinformation have become democratized to some extent. You know, this is what advertisers have been doing for a very long time. Now you can do it and target it to, you know, the finest level of detail uh, and and reach people without them knowing that you're targeting them based on those details, what they searched, you know, what cat toy they searched yesterday or if they're looking for a new pair of slippers um, and, and feed them the exact sort of stuff that they've been thinking about recently, which is the really scary part. So it's not just Russia doing it. It's not just Iran or, you know, our our foreign policy adversaries. It's advertisers within our own country and it's also political parties here as well. So we have to decide what what level of that we are okay with. Um, And and i don't think we've really really gotten into the depths of that conversation yet
0: it certainly seems like america is somewhat isolated in this discussion um europe has a robust discussion about privacy and cookies and yeah. and you know right to be forgotten mm-hmm. and all that that just doesn't seem to really exist here certainly not on any level of coming close to what they're to what they're talking about i mean I don't know what really how to frame the question, but is it, is it, which is better? I mean, are we, are we kind of like living in some sort of willful ignorance right now in America and Europe because of its history kind of knows better or is it the other way? Or are they going too far?
1: I think there is a happy and democratic medium that we have yet to find. And part of that is because right now the United States has totally abdicated its responsibility to to, uh, to legislate and regulate on these issues. Uh, we should be setting the democratic standard for the rest of the world. And instead, we're handing it over to very capable people in Europe that have a different understanding of uh, freedom of speech. Uh, certainly, they guard their privacy a lot more strongly than Americans do. Uh, I think we could learn from them on those issues, frankly, um, on the privacy issues. But with regard to speech, I think we have a very different interpretation and it makes it much harder to, to move ahead. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't get into those sticky conversations, because what's happening now is exactly what you alluded to. Uh, we've got the GDPR in, in the EU. Canada is trying to legislate. Uh, the UK has just released a very robust set of recommendations that they're trying to pursue as well. And we're going to have a very fractured internet, whereas I think the United States could lead uh, on what the democratic standard again should be um, not only protecting the rights of our citizens but the rights of citizens in places where the governments might be uh, trying to use the services like facebook like google like twitter for ulterior motives and we're leaving them behind right now
0: well i feel like we've only really scratched the surface on this discussion i'll have to come uh, back we're we're gonna have to have (laughs) you back uh even though she is the disinformation fellow her information is good (laughs) Nina, thank you so much for coming on. And for those of you out there, just a reminder on the book?
1: Yes, How to Lose the Information War, out July 9th. You can pre order it now on Amazon or Bloomsbury, my publisher.
0: Okay. Well, we will talk to you soon, Nina. Thank Thanks you.
1: for having me, Aaron.